Good morning. How are we doing today? How about that worship team? Didn't they rock it today? By the way, if you didn't know, the bald guy with the hat is Keith, okay? Of course, he has a hat on, so you can't tell he's bald, but yeah. Uh, I just want to point out, um, we are five churches in one location, and today, Kara from our kids' ministry, our, one of our interns is here helping today. She's in the service today, and she's going to be helping in the back, so thank you. I get to embarrass her. She didn't like that, but that's okay. By the way, with all this rain, April showers bring what? Flowers. No, floods. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, many flowers. We better have a lot of flowers next week, right? And tomorrow. Well, my name is Jeff. Uh, welcome to Bridgewater Conklin. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, uh, I'm so glad you're here. Normally, I'm out front um, greeting people at the door, but uh, today I get to stand up front and talk. People said, are you preaching today? And I said, well, I'm just standing up front and talking. You can determine if it's preaching or not when we're done. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, your electronic device. Uh, we like to use the version app. Uh, we also have an app that Tim referenced. It's our Bridgewater app that you can get on there and you can pull it up and watch and uh, take notes and take you right to the text. We also have hard copies of God's Word back at the Welcome Center. Please, if you need a Bible, go back and grab one and take it with you. But we're going to get to the text Matthew chapter 14 in just a few moments. Oh, I got to turn my thing on here. Just a few moments. There we go. So right, we're, right now we're in the middle towards the end of a series called I Quit. I quit being afraid. I quit fear. In the last couple of weeks, Pastor Tim has talked about quitting anxiety and doubt and fear. But, but I, have a, I have a question. Forgive me. It's been a long time since I've been up here in this situation. So the nerves are still running high. But I know I'm with friends except for Jay, but uh, I'm, really, I'm really thrilled to be here. So I have a question that I want us to struggle through and work through, and that's this question right here. Is it wrong to be afraid? Is it really wrong to be afraid? Don't we teach our children to fear? To, to at least be aware? Check out some of these questions here on the, on the screen. We tell our kids to look both ways. I go outside with my grandson, Michael, and we have a creek in our backyard, and it's about a 15-foot drop off portions of it, and I say, stay back from the edge. Look both ways. Look both ways for cars. Uh, don't talk to strangers. Don't touch that stove. Uh, my daughter works for Pinky's Bakery, and she gets, uh, she's there at, at 4 o'clock this morning. I said, make sure you lock those doors when you're there by yourself. Don't we tell our kids, uh, don't talk to strangers? So don't we tell our, don't we encourage our children at least to be aware, if not fear? Does that sound familiar? Any of those words or phrases ever come out of your mouth? I suspect they probably have. I think the Bible assumes that we will be, that we'll have fear. I mean, it's an emotion that God gave us, so we're, gonna, we're going to experience it. Because the Bible also says, fear not and do not be afraid. I think fear is, a, is sometimes it's a good place to be because it makes us cautious and aware, but it's not a great place to stay. So if we do fear and we, we teach our kids to at least be aware or to be cautious, so the question for me becomes these questions here on the screen. Where will you turn when you're afraid? Who do you run to when something comes up that you have anxiety or doubt or fear? When you're struggling with fear, who do you go to that you trust? Who do you trust to, take, to help you in your fear? See, as you know, 
And also, I want you to know this one thing. You're not alone in your fear. You're not alone in some of these struggles. I want you to check out these statistics. I think I said it right. From 2011, Pastor Aaron sent these to me. And let's just look at these things. These are, these are what anxiety, some of the results of anxiety and fear. Anxiety issues are the most common mental Ill, illness in the United States, affecting 20% of our population. A study that I looked at said one-third of women struggle with anxiety. In 2010, there were more than 253 million prescriptions written for antidepressants. In 2011, there were only 311 million people in America at that time. Anxiety cost America, Americans, 50 billion. Yet in spite of all these things we do to, to temper our fear, to help our anxiety, people still go to the route of suicide. 34,000 people a year. I think it's like 95 a day that works out to be. So fear. Since we're not alone in dealing with fear and our worry, and we actually teach or encourage our children to be cautious or to fear, why is it such a big problem? Why do we have such a big problem? Why are all these things on here that we have such a big problem? Why do so many people struggle with anxiety? Well, I want to build the premise today that perhaps we never truly look to the right place for help. We never look to the right person. When I asked the question up here, a couple of people up in the front row said, who do you look to? They said, look to God. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. But I want to remind us, and we're going to, we're going to look at a, what we might call a secret antidote, fear's kryptonite. We're going to reveal that in a few, in a few minutes. But maybe we're looking in the wrong place, looking to the wrong deliverer. So later on, we're going to talk about this fear's kryptonite. So this passage that we're going to unpack in Matthew, it tells a narrative. It tells a story about the 12 disciples of Jesus. These were the 12 guys that spent three years with him while he was ministering here on earth and traveled with him whenever where they went. And we're going to talk about a time in this passage when they were truly afraid. And the question that we're going to look at and answer is where did they look to for their help? When they were afraid, what did they do? Who did they run to? Who did they look to? You see, they, like us, had lots of options when they, when they were struggling with this fear that we're going to talk about. The question is, did they, have, did they take the courage from God and who they knew him to be, or did they not? Did they try to do something on their own? And as we unpack this passage in Matthew chapter 14, a powerful lesson, I think, is going to emerge. And then there's this overarching idea that, I want us to embrace and hammer home. And here's the overarching idea that we're going to talk about over and over and over. And when you leave today, it's going to be embedded in your brain. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms. Say that with me. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms. Say it again. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms. Okay, I'm going to say it differently once in a while, but this is, the, this is what I want you to leave with today because when you feel like you're all alone and you're by yourself in your anxiety or doubts and worry and fear, God is strong enough. God is strong enough. God is strong enough. So before we unpack Matthew 14, I want to give you a little bit of context. I think context is important to help us understand what's going on in this passage. So if you thumb through the first 13 chapters of Matthew, you're going to find the genealogy of Jesus. You're going to find them, Matthew writing about the birth of Jesus. Um, Matthew, this, is, this is Matthew's journal, his diary, as he was walking and, uh, with Jesus. And we have it in our scriptures. 
And as you continue to read through those chapters, you find uh, in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that's where he kind of officially began his ministry. And then you see all types of things in there, healing and forgiving of people and the lame walking and the blind seeing and people brought back to life. And we'll highlight some of these in just a few moments again. But then we get to the beginning of chapter 14. In the beginning of chapter 14, we learn about the execution of John the Baptist. Now, this, I suspect, was very hard for Jesus because John was Jesus' cousin. And his cousin was executed by Herod. And right after the execution, we read the story about the feeding of the 5,000. Now, just a little side note. It says in the scriptures that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So I'm going to talk a lot about the feeding of the 10,000 because it's probably more like 10,000 people. And after the feeding of the five to 10,000, he immediately sent them out on the boat. Let's look at the Matthew 14, verses 22 through 24. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get in a boat and go ahead on to the other side. So immediately after the feeding of the 10,000 people, after the death of Jesus' cousin, this is, this is what happened. Get in a boat and go to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Verse 23 says, And he dismissed them, and he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the winds because the wind was against it. So let me pause right here. And I want to, I want to talk a little bit and try to get us to feel what the disciples may have been feeling. Okay? Um, I suspect, I know that there are people, men and women in here, who are waiters and waitresses. Okay, and I know that many of you serve across the street at the Conklin Community Center and help uh, give food away to the people when the food truck comes in once a month. And often some of you may help serve at a food kitchen or things like that. Now, I don't know what a normal waitress, how many tables a waitress would serve on a normal, on a normal Friday or Saturday night. I'm suspecting it might be 15. Am I right, Sarah? 15, 20, so maybe there's two or three people, so 35, 40 people. Okay, uh, Sarah, I was talking to Sarah Godoy, by the way, thank you. Um, and at the, at the food truck across the way, I think they have 30 or 40 cars that come in. Can you imagine serving 9,000 people in a 24-hour, in a 20-hour, 18-hour period? Can you imagine that if you're a waiter or a waitress? Can you imagine having to serve 9,000 people in an in a, in a eight-hour shift? Just think about it. Hey, his bread piece is bigger than mine, and I didn't ask for bread and fish. I asked for lobster and caviar, and where's my water? And waiter, my napkin is gone, and, and my son didn't get his food yet. And, and they just went on and on and on. I can't imagine serving 10,000 people at once. And then after that, after that, they had to pick up all the food that was left over. They had to clean up. They had to bust all the tables and take care of all the food. And it was a very long and emotional day. They saw Jesus creating food out of food, and then they, they were tired. And so Jesus sends them out on the boat so he can go up on the mountainside and relax. And while he goes up on the mountain after dismissing the crowd to pray, we read that the journey across the water didn't go as they expected it to go. Now, it's been my experience that when I'm tired, that seems to, that seems to get my nerves on edge, and I'm a little short with my wife or my kids or my grandson, and people don't like to be around me when I'm prickly, right? I think tiredness seems to promote or increase our anxiety, our worry, and our doubt, and things just seem to be a little, more, a little worse than they are. We get tired, and the struggles become bigger and greater and worser. And then on top of that, it's raining. There's a storm. 
There's a storm out there. Now, I want to show you a picture of a boat that was discovered in 1985. This was a boat that was discovered in 1985 on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is dated to the time frame around when we're talking about when Jesus was walking on our first century. Now, it's probably not the same boat, but the next picture will show you generally what it looked like. Okay? That's generally what it looked like. So here's what I want you to understand. That boat is about 8 feet wide and 27 feet long, 30 feet long. So I measured out, there are five, five chairs in here is, is like 9 feet. So four chairs is about 8 feet. And from the front of this stage back to where uh, John is sitting, raise your hand, John, is about 27 feet. So you can fit about seven of these boats in this room. So here's the, th here's the point I'm trying to make. It's not a very big boat, and there are 12 guys in it with all their belongings and 12 baskets of food. They're probably getting on each other's nerves. It's not a very big ocean-going vessel, and they've been rowing for probably the last six hours. They've been up for about 24 hours, and I bet Peter is really getting on John and James's nerves, and Matthew's kind of like, what is going on? And I don't know what's going on. And the stress and anxiety in that boat is probably peaking. And then look what's happening in verses, uh, the next two verses. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. They were afraid. They were struggling. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. What's the old saying? Uh, problems come in three. So they're tired. There's a storm. And now there's a ghost. It's a, it's a haunted storm. But here's something I want to pause and I want to hammer home, and I want each of us to realize and understand here. This was Jesus' plan. Jesus wasn't surprised. God wasn't sitting up in heaven and saying, oh no, what am I going to do? They're in a boat, and now it's raining, and it's a storm. This was his plan. It was his plan to wear them out on that day, have them serve 10,000 people, then put them in a boat, go across the Sea of Galilee, cause the storm to come up, and then scare them half to death. That was Jesus' plan. 50 years ago, we would look for a candy camera crew. Say, hey, what's going on? And uh, I, I did some research. I don't watch the show, but I understand there's a show called Punked that does the same kind of things out now. But, but no, that's, that's not what was happening. This was God's plan. And it was to teach them about God. To teach them this thing right here. Next slide. God is stronger than even your strongest storm, disciples. God is stronger than even your strongest storm, Conklin people. Let me bring it to home. Let me, let me step on some toes and, and kind of ramp it up here. That situation that you're dealing with right now, that insurmountable task, maybe it's financial, maybe it's health, maybe it's a family worry or a fear that you're dealing with. You know, you know the one I'm talking about. You're going to talk about it after dinner today when you get home. You and your, your spouse talked about it last night before you went to bed and maybe even argued about it on the way to church this morning, right? I mean, if you haven't been in a situation, just speculate with us and think about it. But I suspect everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's that situation. It seems like God has stayed on the shore behind you. He's not there with you, and you're out in the middle of a storm by yourself. And if it wasn't bad enough to be in a storm, now it's a haunted storm. So here's what I need you to hear and understand. 
that God is still there. God, God is in that storm with you. He is in those circumstances that you and I fear. He didn't leave you and abandoned you. He is there. That storm you so desperately want to get out of, and you've been awake all night, and now it's 4 a.m., God put you there. Because he wants you to realize this fact right here. God is strong enough for even your greatest storms. He is greater than your greatest fear, than your greatest anxiety. Were the disciples fearful at this point? You bet they were. Of course they were. I mean, like I said, it wasn't a big ocean-going vessel with motors on the back and a cabin for them to crawl into and take a nap and, and get a snack out of the fridge. And they were miles from shore. It was night. They'd been rowing. And all of a sudden, now they see a ghost walking on the water towards them. That's why I said it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to, to have these, these things happen. It's totally normal to be afraid at this point. But what they didn't realize is what they actually, what they feared actually was going to help them. They saw this ghost, didn't know what it was. They were fearful of it. But that ghost turned out to be the person who could help them the most. And you know something? Your fear, the thing that you're fearing the most, the thing you're struggling with may actually be part of the solution that God has for you. See, God is working in your life. He's building your faith. He's building your character. But I get it. If you don't know, maybe you don't know where the money's going to come to pay the mortgage and the rent that's due tomorrow, May 1st. It's okay. It's natural to be afraid. It's okay. Maybe you, your marriage, you think, maybe you don't, don't know if your marriage is going to survive. You're having some struggles. It's okay. It's okay to be afraid. Maybe someone you love has cancer or another disease or cancer has come back. Fear is totally natural. If one of your children has made wrong choices and is walking away from God, you can't change how you feel, but you can choose where you look for help. You see, God is greater than your greatest fear. He is stronger and strong enough for even your strongest storms. Look at verse 27 on the screen. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Take courage. It's me. Hey, I'm here to help you. Where do children go when they get hurt? Mama? My grandson is not quite three yet, and he still gets boo-boos. Okay? And what does he want done with his boo-boos? Kiss my boo-boo, Papa. So children go to their, their mom or their papa or their grammy because they, they know that they can help them. Remember those three questions I talked about? That's where children go. Even as children, we learned we need to run to the right person when we're afraid. And as adults, it's no different. And God is the one that we need to run to. He is stronger and greater than our greatest storms or our strongest events in our lives. So remember those questions I had on the screen earlier today? Where will you turn when you're afraid? Where, who do you run to? And when you're struggling with fear, who do you trust? Let's look where Peter went to. Next, next verse here. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come up to you out of the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Peter knew exactly that Jesus could help him that Jesus could save him. So what did he want to do? He said, I'm getting out of this boat and these weird guys and I got to get with you, Jesus. He ran to Jesus. 
He ran to Jesus. Do you? Do I? When we're having our greatest fears and struggles about a marriage, or about a health issue, or about a financial issue, or a family issue, do we run to Jesus or do we run somewhere else? So if he's big enough, what do we do? How do we live this out? How do we lean into this? How do we focus on him and not our situations? How do we focus on him? Well, the first point I want to talk about is this. Remember what God has done. So I'm going to talk today about the three R's. And for those of you who are my age or older, it's not reading, writing, and arithmetic, okay? There's three, R, three R's. The first one is remember. Remember what God has done. When you're going through struggles and you're having a hard time, and I, I sit and talk with people that are going through hard times, I say to them, well, I don't understand why this is happening. About, about two months ago, a five-month-old died who's part of a family that I knew at Ross Corners. And I sat down with the grandparents. I said, I don't understand, but I know what God has done, and I still trust who he is. See, it's not like Peter met Jesus yesterday and didn't know who he was. Here's what he saw in just a very short time with Peter saw from with Jesus in the first two years. And I mentioned some of these already. He multiplied, multiplied those loaves and fishes just 12 hours earlier. He healed blind men. He healed a mute man. He raised a dead girl and healed a sick woman. He calmed storms. He restored two demon-possessed men. He healed Peter's mother-in-law and many other people got healed. He healed the centurion servant. He healed a leper. He healed sick all over the place. That's everything that Peter had seen. So here's my question. What has God done for you? What has God done in you and around you? These stories are great. They're from the Bible and they're true. But what about the stories in your life? When has God shown up in a huge way that when you get in those, those fearful times, you tend to forget them? Because negative things really kind of seem to be in our mind all the time. Or when has what you feared not happened or not showed up? You know, as long as I'm focused on my power and my struggles to fix my problems, I'm actually going to miss the one who's big enough to help my biggest storms. Next slide. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms. God is greater than your greatest fear. See, we tend to focus on the negative. But let's change that perception. Let's change that and say, focus on the positive. So what has God done? What has God done in your life? This is a great place for uh, something you might call a praise journal or a blessing box. It's really helpful. Now, we have a blessing box at home, and it has some things in it. One of the things that has in it is a roofing nail. Why is there a roofing nail? Well, several years ago, I had a leak on my roof, and I contacted a friend of mine. He's a contractor. So you got any extra shingles I can buy because I got a leak on my roof? Well, I showed up at my house a couple of days later, and there in my driveway was all the supplies to do my entire roof, all donated by him and a couple other people. For free, donated there. And then he says, Jeff, I called him up and said, hey, what's going on? He goes, Jeff, I, God has blessed me. I just want to bless you. All you're going to do is find someone to put it up. So I contact a friend of mine and said, hey, I want to hire you to put my roof up. He goes, no, I'm not gonna, you're not going to hire me. I'm going to do it for you. So my friend showed up on a Friday morning at 6 a.m. and he and his crew and, my, and I, I brought some friends too. Started at 6 a.m., 8 o'clock, the entire roof was done. Stripped down and redone. So that's why I got a, a roofing nail. See, sometimes when you're in the middle of the darkest times, you tend to forget those blessings. So you pull out the blessing book and you start going, oh yeah, I remember this. Oh yeah, I remember this. Oh yeah, I remember this. 
It's easy to forget the good times when we're going through the hard. Do you remember what God has done in your life? Do you remember those near misses? Maybe it's the trip that you took. You wanted to leave the house by 9. You didn't leave. You were late. You left at 9.05. Yeah. And uh, you left at 10, quarter after. You got on the road and the, road and the traffic was heavy. And you're delayed, and then you came upon an accident that you would have been around if you had left when you wanted to happen. You actually missed that accident. Pretty lucky, huh? Yeah, right. Do you remember what God has done? I bet Jesus, I bet Peter did. Now, I want to take a little side and look at verse 30 here. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and began, beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. Where did Peter turn to for his help when he started to sink in the waves? He turned to Jesus. Where, where do you turn to? Now, I just want to pause and talk for just 30 seconds, 40 seconds about target fixation. If you ride a motorcycle or you drive a car, a sports car quickly, you know about target fixation. What is target fixation? Anybody know? You look, you drive where you look. So um, some friends of ours from this campus are down at the uh, Tail of the Dragon on their, in, their, in their sports car. I've ridden the Tail of the Dragon. It's, it's uh, 311 curves in 11 miles. No, 318 curves in 11 miles. It's great to go on a motorcycle. But when people get on it, they crash. Why? Because they look at the, uh, they look at the guardrail, they look at the yellow line, they cross it, and they wreck. That's target fixation. Target fixation is you end up where you look. Where did, where did Peter look? He saw the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. Peter practiced target fixation. He took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. What about us? When we take our eyes off Jesus, do the, uh, does the struggles seem to overwhelm us? That's the question that, that we need to deal with. That's why we need to remember what God has done. The second thing I want you to know is this. Recognize what God is doing right now. Look at verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? So let me ask you a question. Peter is beginning to sink and going under the waves. Whoa, oh, wow. <laughs> See, God even does that. <laughs> Target fixation. Okay. <laughs> what was Jesus doing when Peter was sinking? He was walking on the water. He was performing a miracle. Even if Peter forgot about what Jesus had done for the first two years, if he forgot about what Jesus did yesterday, he couldn't miss what Jesus was doing right now. He was standing on water, and he wasn't going under. There's no denying what Jesus was doing right now. Look at this next verse here. With your eyes on God, you can walk on the waves of your fears instead of drowning under them. Peter took his eyes off God, and he began to go under and drown. So here's the thing. In our trials, we often lose sight of what God is doing right now. We lose sight of what he did. We lose sight of what he's doing right now because those trials are around us. And Hebrew tells us to do something different. Look at this passage in Hebrews. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. There it is. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, so that you will not grow weary be afraid, and lose heart, have anxiety. So I'll do a little exercise, okay? You can participate or you can just listen to the fat, bald guy talk. Is God moving in your lives right now at our church? 
Yes, he is. I mean, if you can't see it, Tim actually mentioned it already, but he's done so much. And if, if you're in the storm and you're struggling, you can't see it, so <clears throat> I'm going to talk about it, right? He's here doing something. He's here in this room doing something. I mean, we're going to get to Conklin in just a moment, but 37 people. 37 people, this is the last day of April, only four months in the year 2023, 37 people have chosen to make Jesus the leader of their life and forgive their sins. 37 people in four months. That's awesome. Montrose has had 20 baptisms in the first four months. If they have six more, that'll be more baptisms where people step out in faith and share their faith with other people. If they have six more, that'll be more baptisms than in 100 years. In 1913, they had 41 people choose to have baptism. Vestal, where I, grew, where I was pastor back at Ross Corners, in the first four months, <laughs> 15 people came to Christ. In the first four months of this year, when I was a pastor at Bridgewater, I was an associate pastor with uh, another guy. I don't think, I was there for about 18 years. I don't think we had 15, 15 people except Christ the entire time I was here. And 15 people this year alone. Look at this picture right here. Anybody know who that is? You recognize him? This is Gavin. Last week, we thought he was kidnapped or lost. And we put out a massive, they put out a massive search. His stepmom and he go to the Halstead campus. And just a few days ago, he was found. God is working. Tonkanic campus, they're at three services now because they're busting out the seams at that little church. Three services with Pastor Kurt and Pastor Adam. They're doing an awesome job down there. They got the new building. I'm working hard with the get, we're working hard to get that thing up and running. Let's talk about Conklin. I'm not going to mention any names, but there are several health issues in here where people have recovered from strokes and cancer and all types of things. God is moving. Also, I was weeping over here. In the last three years, we've been through a lot of stuff. Those of you who have, if you look around the room, there are people that weren't here last week or last month or last year. God is bringing so many new people. And three years ago, we, we started on a really tough way. You know, we lost our campus pastor. We've lost not one, but two worship leaders. And now Pastor Tim is here. He's doing a great job, right? We have so many new families, so many young families, and we just announced uh, Keith as the worship leader. I, I guess he'll do, yeah. <laughs> and here's something that many of you don't, won't, won't have access to. Since Easter, our attendance has been at or above 300 for the last two weeks. And it looks like today we might, I mean, depending on what the second service does and if the boats can get in, well, maybe we'll have 300 again. But God is on the move. This is incredible. God is on the move at Conklin. Could you believe it? You know something? Next slide. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms. Sorry, it's hard. God is greater than your greatest storms. And we went through the last three years. Those of you who are still here, thank you for sticking it out with me and us and going on. But in the face of our problems, it's hard to see those good things. Peter demonstrated that. He lost sight of God who was standing in front of him because Jesus reached out and grabbed him. He said, remember, remember what I said. Where will you look? Where will you turn when you're in the midst of those hard times? 
Look to Jesus. The last thing I want to talk about is this. Respond to who God is. So we have remember, recognize, and respond. Those are the three R's. Look at verse 32 and 33. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Here's what we want to key on. Next slide. They worshipped him. Remember I told you that there's a secret antidote. There's kryptonite to fear and anxiety. Worship. Worship is the antidote to fear and anxiety. It's the kryptonite to our doubts and our struggles. Fear and worry and doubt and anxiety all shout, look at me, look at me, look at the waves, you're not going to make it. And worship says what? Look at him. Look at him. That song that we sang right before we, we, uh, I came up, what was, the, what was the title of that song, Keith? Look to him or look... Lift you high. And Abby's singing, and we're all singing, worship is a weapon. Worship is a weapon. And I think that's perfect. Worship is a weapon against our anxiety, against our fears, against our doubts. Worship says, look at God. The antidote is to look at God. You see, next slide says this. God is strong enough and greater than your greatest fears. At the beginning, I offered these three questions. To who do you turn? To who do you run? And who do you look for? Fear shouts, look at me, look at me. Look at the waves, look at the problem. Worship says, no, look at God. Look at God. There's a passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that Tim preached on a couple months ago. Let me just briefly talk to you about it here as we get close to the end. The king of Israel is Jehoshaphat. He, is, he learns from a servant of God that three nations have joined together to make a massive army to come and wipe out the, the, the Israelite nation. And God says to him, hey, don't worry about it. I've got your six. I've got your back. All you got to do is march out there and just watch. I'll take care of you. And, they, and so Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat goes to his, his, his people and said, what do we do? And they came up with the craziest battle plan ever. They said, I know. Let's send the worship team out first in front of the warriors. And well, the, the warriors come behind them. Now, I'm a man of faith, but man, send the worship team out to fight? I don't know if that's going to work. Um, I don't know if these, these uh, great people here would want to... And Joseph had, says, uh, okay, let's do this. Uh, I think Joseph, I think I would have said, you know, let's, let's just watch from a safe distance. I don't know if I want to do that, but they did. They sent it out, and guess what? The enemy killed each other. They killed themselves. See, it's hard to be afraid of a massive army while you're singing songs about what God has done. The worship team went out there, the, the armies worship God, and it's hard to be afraid. It's hard to have fears when you're singing about what God has done. I'm singing these songs up here. I'm singing all these songs that, we, that the worship team is leading us to, and I, I can't think of anything else except my praise to God and how great he is. Put it another way, it's this. It's hard to focus on yourself when you're focusing on God. It's hard to focus on yourself when you're focusing on God. Seriously, try it. We're going to do it. We're going to sing in just a few moments. So sing with all your heart. Focus on God, who is and what he has done, and see if that doesn't take away some of the anxiety and fear that you walked in with. It'll probably even dispel it completely. So the answer to the questions from earlier is where do we turn and who do we run to and who do we look for? They said it up here at the beginning, look to God. And guess what? That is accomplished through worship. 
Worship is the secret weapon against anxiety. Look here on the screen here. In physical darkness, God gives us light. In emotional darkness, God gives us music. Singing is to fear what wind is to fog and truth is to lies. It dispels it and drives it away. And here's a secret you probably already know because you're here today on this rainy day. Church is a place where you can come once a week and worship and do just that. We can listen to to preaching and sing songs and talk with your fellow friends. That's worship. You can dispel those fears. And also, church will help you remember those three R's. Remember what God has done. Remind you of what God is doing. And respond to who God is in singing. So I have a twofold challenge for you today before you leave. Number one is this. Commit to being here for the every Sunday in May. Commit to being here for every Sunday in May. The preaching of God's word is worship. Singing in this room is worship. It reminds us of who God is and what he's done and what he has done. And come every week and bring someone with you that's going through some fears and struggles. Say, hey, listen, I, tr- I have a secret antidote to, to fear. It's worship. Come on, I'll show you where it is. And number two, Take a 30-day Christian music challenge. Now, don't be legalistic about it, but try to listen to the praises of God. If you don't have a smartphone, you can listen to 88.5. That's Family Life Network. Uh, iHeart Music Radio, I don't know what their call sign is or their numbers are, but we also have a Spotify account. Um, Bridgewater has all their music. The music you listen to when you walk in and the music we sing and the music we listen to when you walk out. If you scan that QR code and you bring it up to Spotify in all of our worship songs, I think there's like 30 or 32 worship songs on, on, on that account. And it, it rotates like every month, I think. Lane would know a little better than me. But you can listen and sing along with the music that you sang in church today. But it's not just listening. It's actively singing and creating music. So that's the challenge for you. Try to be here every week and listen to Christian music. Now, we're going to close with a video. It's by Admiral McRaven. Admiral McRaven was a, was a SEAL, not a, but a, a, an Army SEAL. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Had to break the struggles and tension. Yeah. Um, and this is a commencement speech that he gave at 2014 at the University of Texas. And he talks a little bit about his SEAL training in the power of singing when confronted with fear and despair. So go ahead and listen to this, and I'll come up and close us when this is done. Just two minutes. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana you guys can go. where water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man until there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours 
of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. <laughs>